Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. There's a desire for something that cannot be found in this life. Well, unless nature does make something for nothing, then that is going to have to be for something literally out of this world, and I don't mean Mars. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Marianne Orlandi, and it's a pleasure to welcome, once again, our senior fellow and UT professor, Jay Budicheski. Good morning, Jay. Good morning. So it's not the first time we have you on our podcast, but it's been quite a while. It so has been. How how has this past year been for you? And uh, I would say, was it a happy one? Well, yeah, there's been a lot of happiness in this year, although it's certainly insane. If happiness depended entirely on external circumstances, we would have had a problem. <laughs> you know how COVID has, uh, has treated everybody. But yeah, it has been a good year. Yeah, for those who are curious, we had Professor Budzicewski talk about prudence last year. But mine today was a tricky question, one which is meant to introduce the topic of today's episode. And by this, I mean your just released book, How and How Not to Be Happy, published by Ragnary. Before we get to the contents of the book, however, would you mind introducing yourself briefly to our audience? Well, sure. What do you think that they would be interested in? I'm a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas. I've been there since Brontosauri roamed the streets, and I came there in 1981. I'm interested in the ethical foundations of social and political order. And uh, so that takes me into natural law. You can't talk about those things without talking about the virtues, without talking about happiness, without talking about conscience, without talking about all those kinds of stuff about the innards of the human soul. So I'm interested in all of that. Yeah, Professor Bajosaki has a lot of interest and he didn't directly mention the interest he has on Thomas Aquinas, uh, yes. but he's a widely renowned Thomist who has already published four treaties now? Um, well, it, it depends. It, the first one had a uh, had a, a supplement, which is free and online, which is a separate book. So you can call that four and a half. You can call it four. You can call it five. I never know what number Say, I should give. Abundantly. Abundant four. <laughs> a bunch of them. Yeah, a uh, bunch of them. And I'm working on another one. Wonderful. And according to many, including me, he has by now inherited the same structure of mind of Thomas Aquinas. And, and I think that such a clarity of thought is reflected in your latest book, How I Know Not to Be Happy. Thank you. I would say that that structure of mind is particularly clear if one will look when the copy is out and they have it in their hand and they can look at the table of contents. You know, you, you have all this structure that in questions. So I think that it's not too far a stretch to say that. You've learned something from the scholar you're, you're studying the most. I would like to go in the content of this book, mm -hmm. but I think that the premise for a conversation on a book is always the basic question of why did you write a book on happiness? Well, I wrote the book for several reasons. One reason is that... Um, Years ago, when I was a young man, I was desperately unhappy myself, and that was needless. I see that many of my students today are dreadfully unhappy and haven't a clue as to what happiness might be. That's not the case with all of them, but it's the case with many of them. We have a lot of very hurting and disordered lives, and so um, there's a, a personal reason and there's a teacherly reason there. A second reason is just that the topic fascinates me. I learned so much about this from writing my commentary a line-by-line -line commentary on the treatise on happiness and alternate purpose of Thomas Aquinas. And so this isn't another commentary on Aquinas, but it's it's trying to take what I've learned from him, and this is my own take on the topic. You mentioned the fact that you were unhappy and that students today are unhappy, but 
as you write in your book, which I had the pleasure to read some excerpts from the book in advance, you ask yourself and your readers, how do you measure happiness? So on the one hand, you know you are unhappy, but at the same time, you pose this question, how do we measure it? People don't always know that they're unhappy. Many people, I think, are unhappy and don't know it. They're not introspective in itself. That's not terribly bad. It doesn't promote happiness to always be thinking about yourself. But people sometimes have no awareness of their interior life at all and uh, and don't know that they're unhappy. It's also possible to be happy and not know it. Sometimes you may, this is a, a point that C.S. Lewis makes, and I think he's absolutely right. A married couple may think back to a time when they were they were young and they were raising their children and they, they think about it and they say, we were happy then, weren't we? But they didn't think about it at all at the time. The how are you at the time? People often confuse the question, am I happy, with the question, am I having a good time? That was a point that the philosopher Mortimer Adler made. Or they confuse happiness with good feelings. You know, you get remarkably different answers if in surveys you ask people, are you satisfied with your life? They'll say one thing. Are you happy? They'll say something else. Tiny little changes in the wording of the question elicit different answers. And I think people are terribly confused. That's one of the reasons why I'm not very, I'm not a fan of the so-called happiness studies industry that largely depends on massive survey research where you ask people what makes you happy, are you happy, and then you just collate all the answers. There are some people who think that we could bypass all of that completely. And um, an economist in the 19th century, F.Y. Edgeworth, thought that one day, just as we have instruments to measure heat and we have instruments to measure energy, he thought that we would have instruments to measure happiness. And I think this was terribly confused. It may be that we could have instruments to measure pleasure because there really is a pleasure center in the brain and you can measure the electrical activity there. But that begs the question of whether happiness is the same as pleasure. It's not. You can be having all kinds of pleasure and not be having a good life. You can be saying, uh, you know, this pleasure is getting old. Isn't there something else? And so I think that that in order to ask the question, in order to find out what happiness, the only possible instrument is the instrument of thoughtful conversation. And we can talk about that if you mean what I, if, if you like what I mean by that. Yeah, I would love to hear. But so for those who are listening and want to understand, so what we're saying here is that you can't actually measure it by any survey that or by any results right mm -hmm. in life like how many kids do you have or are you married or not like these could no, be no. things that contribute they may be definitely things that contribute you know i've married and had children and that was one of the most wonderful things in my life but you can't just count children measure whether somebody is are you married or not and and know okay Yes, the person's happy. No, the person's happy. Yes, the person's 75% happy. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Which in a way explains, I think that some people use the word subjective, like that happiness is subjective in the wrong, like not in the appropriate way. So mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. Happiness is an objective state. It's not a subjective state, meaning that there is such thing as a good life. What is subjective, however, is that it depends. It's not the circumstances that will determine whether we are happy or unhappy. It's what we make of those mm -hmm. circumstances, how we look yes, at Yes, I think I know what you're trying to say. I would put it like this. There's one sense, of course, in which happiness is subjective. It is about the subject. It is about me. I am the one whose happiness is being interrogated. 
So in that sense, it's subjective. But in another sense, it isn't subjective. If what if by subjective people mean, well, happiness for you is one thing, and happiness for me is something else, and it's all in the eye of the beholder. No, a person may think he's happy and and not be happy. We find people claiming that they're happy and committing suicide. There's whether a person is happy or not is a uh, is a statement which is capable of being whether we can find out the answer is one thing, but in principle there is an objective answer to the question yes the person is happy no the person isn't happy, and it's not just a matter of personal definitions it isn't subjective in that sense. Hmm. Okay, I see. And so going to that thoughtful conversation that people should have mm-hmm. in order to assess their happiness what you mean you mean like socratic dialogue that is exactly what i mean and that's the kind of thing that i try to do in this book what i mean by that is this the people who ask a lot of questions and collate all their survey data are not wholly wrong they think well people know something about themselves and that is true i think people can be mistaken about themselves but it's not as though people are clueless how could they be we have inside knowledge of ourselves The problem is that we may be confused about this. We may not have connected the dots. There may be things that we are sort of half aware of, but aren't thinking about. Uh, we may believe all kinds of inconsistent things. Now, Aristotle did something very interesting. He asked his own students, well, what is happiness? This was after he'd already been talking to them for a while, and they said, yes, what they really want is to be happy. And he said, well, what is happiness? And some said things like honor, some said virtue, some said wealth. And he didn't scorn those common opinions. He didn't heap contempt on them. He began with them, but then he used other elements of common opinion to cross-examine these common opinions. So, for instance, somebody says, oh, I think happiness lies in being approved and honored and, you know, having uh, external honor. And you say, well, would you want to be honored for qualities that you didn't really have? And you knew you didn't have them, but they didn't know. And most people will say, well, no, I wouldn't. And he says, so it looks like What you really think is happiness would be closer to having these qualities that are worth honoring rather than just getting the honor, right? And then people say, oh, yeah, I guess that is what I really think. This is what I mean by happiness, by um, using common opinion to cross-examine common opinion. That's what Socrates did. Yes, you're right. And that's what Aristotle did. Although it isn't always recognized because he doesn't use the conversation form, Mm -hmm. that's really, in many parts of his work, what Thomas Aquinas is doing. On that note, and this is, you know, I wanted to follow the structure of the book first, but I think that it's appropriate to ask this question now. You write the book in the same structure, but what the question that I have is, do we need also a person that is a mirror and that helps us in this thoughtful conversation? And do you think that it is possible just being in front of a book or in front of a thought to do this introspection on our own? Well, if you do a good job in writing a book, what an author hopes for is that he can be, through that book, another person, a sort of a mirror. So I'm not thinking of the book as a substitute for having other people. The things that I wrote in this book, I wouldn't know if it hadn't been for being able to have the comparison and the mirroring of other people in many thoughtful conversations. And I'm including conversations across the centuries with folks like Thomas Aquinas, with folks like Aristotle. So yeah, I think we definitely need other people. When we say that man, and I mean that term generically, men and women, when we say that man is a social being, we don't just mean that 
or we shouldn't just mean that human beings have a, an instinct to hang around like cows. What this means is that we're beings of such a kind that social communion has the most penetrating importance for everything that we do. We can't be fulfilled without it. It isn't the entire meaning of fulfillment, but we can't be fulfilled without it. For us, the good life isn't good unless we can share it with others. And we can't even learn about the good life without uh, seeking it together with others and then trying to live together according to that truth. Absolutely. I mean, this is a brilliant point. And I think that Many times people mistake this point and think, oh, no, I'm totally content on my own. Forgetting <laughs> yeah. that, you know, yeah, but someone is providing, a hot, there is someone working in a hospital next to your house in case something happened. Mm -hmm. And there are neighbors that say hello to you in the morning. And there are books that have been written by other people that you know, comfort you during the hours where you don't know what to do. That role of community that is there, even when we don't engage with it directly. But yes. it's still existing. Yeah, I think that's right. There are two opposite extremes that you can go to. There's the extreme of saying, whenever you've achieved anything, you didn't achieve that to resentfully you know, say it was everybody else. Well, that's one extreme that is mistaken. But on the other hand, if you imagine that you're self-sufficient and that you don't, in fact, have enormous debts that you can never repay to God, to your parents, and to your friends, then uh, you're also missing the boat. Absolutely. So getting to the table of contents and all the questions. So you, the, the title of the book is how and how not to be happy. Mm -hmm. So the not, what does it, what are you indicating where is not the way to be happy? In the, well, you refer to the table of contents in the second part of the three parts of the book. I go through one after another of a number of false candidates for happiness. Now, I couldn't possibly consider all the false candidates. People are always coming up with new ones. Aristotle thinks of, you know, three or four of them <laughs> and discusses them. Thomas Aquinas considers more than that. I've increased the list still further, but there are others. I don't have a chapter on is happiness found in meaningful work alone? Is happiness found in this? But I, uh, I go over some of the common candidates is does happiness lie in wealth? Let's go on the, you said you didn't have a chapter on, on meaningful work, but you have a chapter on meaning. I do have a chapter on meaning. And so meaningful work is folded into that. The chapter is on whether happiness is meaning on, or commitment. And the answer is? The answer is that although without meaning in our lives, we're going to be unhappy, there's more to it than just having meaning. There are several problems here. In the first place, many people who say this, and this is true of a lot of people in what I call the happiness industry, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the happiness studies crowd, they're what I call relativists of meaning. You have to have a meaning in your life. You know, you have to imbue it with meaning. And for them, it can be anything. One of them says he found that people did much better when they watched episodes of The Oprah Show. Well, <laughs> give me a break. This is, <laughs> there's something missing here. I admire the 12-step groups immensely. But you know, the second step, like Alcoholics Anonymous, the, uh, the second step is it, or the third step, is we entrusted ourselves to a power greater than ourselves. We came to realize that we had to entrust ourselves to a power greater than themselves. Okay, there's meaning there. But one reporter once went around and he asked people who were in 12-step groups, cocaine users anonymous, alcoholics anonymous, sex addicts anonymous, well, what is, for you, what is the greater power? And some said God. That was the most common answer. Some people said, uh, well, it's the power of the group. Some people said things like my inner goddess. One guy said, well, for me, it's electricity. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe you, in a subjective way, 
find meaning in electricity, but it can't promise what you're asking of it. It isn't, in fact, the meaning of your life. You may get good feelings from it, but I don't think that we can call a life that is built on a delusion happy. So the first problem here is that we have to, our meanings have to be grounded on truths. The second thing is that even if you have meaning by itself, some people would think that's all that's necessary. Like people will say, if you have health, you have everything. If you have wealth, you have everything. If you have meaning, you have everything. No, you don't. You can know some truths about what is meaningful in life and uh, still not attain happiness. Yeah, I, in that chapter, I, one thing that I really, I mean, there was a funny example and I recommend reading your book because sometimes, you know, I find myself just laughing because of the way you, you pose, cer you <laughs> pose certain, certain um I didn't want it to be dry. <laughs> but no, you're definitely not dry. Um, but it, at some point when you were talking, do you remember the example you have to the scrambled eggs? The scrambled eggs, the scrambled eggs. No, you better yeah. remind well, me. Well, so it is when you're saying that we're not part of the cosmos and said, imagine yourself oh, yeah, you know, yeah. when you're doing scrambled eggs. Oh, sure. So, some so people you can say, say better than me. Some people will say, well, you, they talk about finding meaning in, in being a part of the cosmos, that when you look at the sky and you, have, you feel this longing for something beyond everything, you want to be united with the all. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'm happy to be in a universe that has in it interesting things like athletic socks and scrambled eggs and garlic and and uh, kittens and horseshoes, but I don't want to be united with all of those things. <laughs> I, how would I gain meaning or happiness from that? I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be myself if I was just uh, united with that hodgepodge. Yeah, and then you said, you know, it's it's my hand that is scrambling the hat, I, but it's not my kitchen. That is owning me, and I'm I'm not I've a part of my kitchen scrambling yes, eggs. You were right? thinking that you were yes, you were thinking of a different passage than I thought you were talking about. Yeah, right. A lot of the confusions about this have to do with confusions about wholes and parts. And people will say, "Well, I'm just a part of the whole universe." Well, I'm a part of it in one sense, but there's another sense in which every human being is greater than the universe because we are persons. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said, "The person is the most perfect thing in all nature." Not perfect in the sense that it that it can have a complete life without other persons. We need personal communion, but it's a greater thing than just a hodgepodge of big things. It's greater. A person is greater than a galaxy, and I I said that I may be in my kitchen, but I'm not part of it in the same sense that my thumb is a part of me. Whatever my thumb does, I'm responsible for. But we wouldn't go one level up and say, well, since I'm a part of it, you know, I'm in the kitchen, so I'm a part of the kitchen. So the kitchen is scrambling the egg using me as its instrument. That would be very silly. Which is also the reason why I would say, even though all are in, you know, all the people around them might be very happy, we might still be very sad precisely because we have a very personal perception and understanding of the word. Like there is in no way we we confuse ourselves with what is around us. How about pleasure? Well, pleasure, okay, pleasure's fun. Pleasure's great. I have nothing against pleasure, but there are a number of problems here. Is it the same thing as happiness? Uh, well, no, it isn't. For one thing, have you noticed, this is a point that Socrates brought up in one of his dialogues, that we don't speak of complete happiness as something that's incompatible with misery, but pleasure can be compatible with pains. I have to be experiencing the pain of thirst for that icy glass of water to be really pleasurable. It actually depends on the discomfort of the thirst. So that's one reason for thinking, eh, happiness is something different. Complete fulfillment is something else, but there's more to it. Pleasure gets old. 
pleasure gets old. And it's not just because we look for the wrong kinds of pleasures that get boring, like a life filled with nothing but Disney World, but intellectual pleasures get boring. The pleasures of beauty, everything gets boring. You say, is there is this all there is? The fundamental mistake that we're making here, I think, when we think that pleasure is happiness, is that we think pleasure is the good. And it isn't. Pleasure is a secondary good. It's something that you experience when you're not pursuing pleasure for its own sake, but pursuing something else. If I pursue friendship for its own sake, I will experience the pleasure of friendship. If I pursue God because he is God, I will be able to take joy in that relationship. But if I just pursue the pleasure of friendship, if I say, I'll only make a friend so that I have the pleasure of friendship, you're going to miss the whole point of what friendship is. And people who do make pleasure the goals of their actions ultimately don't have much pleasure. Philosophers sometimes call that the hedonistic paradox. The way that Thomas Aquinas puts this is to say that pleasure is, he didn't say it's not a good, but it's a good in a secondary way because it is the experience of repose or rest in the enjoyment of something else that is good. If pleasure is a byproduct of our searching for the other goods or of enjoying the other goods what goods and how do we know which well ones? there are there are a lot of goods if i dropped out of the sky and said here is my doctrine of what the human goods are and it made no sense to you didn't chime with anything in your experience you would rightly chase me out the door this is why i say we have to begin with common opinion but not end with it we you know we have to let it cross examine itself we do in fact know that friendship is good, for instance. And we know that, yes, yes, meaning is good. In every one of these things that are the wrong answers in part two, um, like is what is does happiness lie in wealth? Does happiness lie in power? Does happiness lie in, um, in being noticed by others? In every one of them, there's some grain of truth. If there wasn't some grain of truth, then nobody could ever be taken in by these wrong answers anyway. They wouldn't be plausible. We could only be taken in by them and exaggerate that grain because that grain is there. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is sift through all of that chaff to get to the grain of wheat. When you talk about pleasure, you do talk, combined with pleasure, you, you argue that the right way to understand pleasure is linked to the virtues. And there is a sentence that I wrote down that I really liked, and I would like for you to comment on it. You write, the lesson to be drawn is that happiness has far less to do with pleasure than it has to do with what we teach ourselves to find pleasurable and painful. Mm -hmm. Teaching ourselves well is hard work, but we're not mere cat's paws of our feelings. This is a very old idea. <laughs> I'd love to take credit for it, but I can't. You find it as long ago as Thomas Aquinas, as Aristotle, as Plato. We often imagine that we are cat's paws of our feelings, that I can't help it that I like this, that I like that. But don't we, in fact, teach our children a kid might like hitting another kid. And don't we, in fact, teach them not to? We teach them to avoid this. We teach them to take pleasure in other things. And eventually, they don't enjoy the inappropriate thing. We can teach ourselves. You know, it's like falling in love. People say, what can I do? I love her. I love him. And this is, an let us say, an inappropriate person who will only bring you misery. Well, if what people forget is that it may be pretty hard to stop having passionate feelings about somebody once you're already involved in them, but you can do an awful lot to not develop these feelings in the first place. Don't fall in love with somebody and then decide, is this person suitable? Rather, decide who is suitable, spend time around people like that, 
And then because those are the people you're spending time around, it's one of them that you're likely to fall in love with. We can do a lot. Or suppose that an unsuitable feeling or an unsuitable temptation enters your heart, enters your mind. You don't have to dwell on it. You don't have to give it satisfaction, which makes it stronger, which reinforces it. As if it's a temptation, it may be in your mind. You can't stop thinking. It's like saying, don't think about a hippopotamus. Of course, you'll think of a hippopotamus. You can't push this thought out the door, but you can ignore it and go about other things. And eventually, so to speak, <laughs> the uh, that uh, pleasing temptation gets bored and uh, leaves of its own accord. Yeah, that makes me think of like the good habits, like, you know, that we're taught not to gossip or not mm -hmm. to talk poorly about. And that helps us, I think, not developing feelings that we know to be negative towards mm -hmm. certain people just because you we prevent. But I think that what we're going here is called virtue ethics. Well, we're going toward virtue, yes. Virtue ethics is a loaded term. Some people mean by virtue ethics a view of conduct that makes a big deal out of virtue and doesn't think that there are any rules. <laughs> Some people try to use discussion of virtues as a way to avoid moral principles, moral precepts, moral rules. I can do without the command, you know, the Ten Commandments as long as I've got, got the four cardinal virtues. No, it doesn't work that way. The rules we need to follow and the virtues that we need to acquire are flip sides of the same coins. Taken that way, sure. If you mean virtue ethics as just meaning we need to pay attention to the virtues, we need to cultivate the virtues, we need to have them, then yes, that's right. As a matter of fact, it's virtue that's going to tell you how to, we said friendship is good, but if you don't have the virtues of friendship, your friendships are going to be pretty incomplete and shabby and make you wretched. If you don't have the virtues of self-restraint and you think that that wealth is a matter of more and more and more, then you're not going to know when to stop. You're not going to acquire a certain sufficiency for taking care of needs in your life. You're going to try to put all of your happiness into the basin of your bank account or your CDs, and it's not going to be able to hold it. You have to have virtue to know these things. It, it isn't as though virtue is, I said, to know these things. That could be misleading. It isn't as though the insights and the wisdom that are connected with virtue could all be written down in a book. And if you have two volumes of it, 7,000 pages or something, now we know everything. But all of this wisdom that's necessary for making good choices is encoded in these habits, these habits of the heart that we call the virtues. And I think you might have already suggested your take on this, but you do say in your, in your book that differently from the Greeks, different from Seneca, you think that happiness, no, it does not lie in virtue. It doesn't lie in virtue. Aristotle was one of the Greeks and he understood that. He said, it's ridiculous to say, and he was quarreling with, with Socrates here. He said, it's ridiculous to say that a virtuous person is happy at the moment that he's being tortured on the rack. Mm. But the Stoics later on, actually said, yes, the completely virtuous person will be happy when he's being tortured on the rack. And in order to make that somehow seem to be true to themselves, they had to even distort the idea of virtue itself. They had to say, virtue is reposing all of your interests in yourself alone so that external circumstances can't touch you. You'll be independent not only of your enemies, but even of your friends. And I think we might be forgiven if we say that that's less like virtue than like a vice, or in fact, two vices, selfishness and pride. But they really did try to make this work. And it didn't work even for them, because they admitted that there never had been a perfectly virtuous man in that sense. And it was a part of the Stoic philosophy that when things got too hard for you, well, you could just uh, commit suicide, 
One of the Stoic writers says, we should have the attitude of children when they tire of the game. I will play no more. Mm. And Augustine mocked them for this. He said, oh, happy life that needs the aid of suicide to get out of it. If it is really happy, let the wise man stay in it. If he can't stay in it, it must not be, it must not be happy. Uh, so we which is where we are now. Which is where we are. Right oh, yes. Suicide is, is increasing vastly. And contrary to what people expect, uh, is I mean, even, even in, not only suicide, but also the dignified death, right? The fact oh, that people sure. can choose how to peacefully and happily live this world. Right, which is a sham, you know, because wherever so-called voluntary suicide goes in, something else that always creeps in the door through it is putting people to death against their will. People in the Netherlands, a large number of people even now carry cards because euthanasia is practiced so much in the hospitals, carry cards in their pockets saying, if I'm ill and I'm unconscious and can't speak for myself, don't kill me. Yes. But there is this idea, right, that as long as it feels good to me, that is my happiness. And I think that what what is very needed and, and that you write so well is that it helps people think, no, it's not that because it feels good it's going to lead you to happiness. And so then, in fact, you do say happiness is not something that we feel and it's not something that we have, but it's actually something that we do. Yes, that's right. Happiness is not something we feel. It's not just a state that we have. It's something that we do. Happiness is an activity. Hmm. It's an activity. It's. I used to be frustrated when I was young. I read Aristotle and he said, happiness is... And he used verbs. He said, it's, you know, it's uh, living well and doing well. And I thought, well, you haven't told me what it is. Well, he, yes, he had told me what it is. He just didn't tell me what kind of living that would be. Okay. It was a correct definition. I just didn't know enough here. That's enough to say, we understand it as doing something. You know, it's a funny thing. It's very difficult even to judge somebody's life. This is not an original observation. To judge whether somebody was happy until the uh, life is completed. It's kind of like reading a book. I might ask you, what are you reading? And you say, I'm reading uh, Huckleberry Finn. I've never read it before by Mark Twain. And I say, oh, is it is it a good book? And you say, I've enjoyed it on every page, but I can't tell you if it's a good book yet. Ask me when it's done. You know, there's a difference between feeling good or having a good time and the whole story of your life hanging together in such a way that we can say that is a happy life. That is a happy life. We want it to hang together like that. So what is, I mean, I don't know, unless people need to read the whole book to know it, but what is this living well? Well, we're speaking of an activity, right? Mm. This is pretty far into the book after a lot of other much more commonsensical parts. And this is, there's common sense here too, but if you haven't had the preliminaries, it might seem a little bit of a stretch. But after I've tried to establish, after some discussion, that happiness is an activity, I say, well, what kind of an activity? You know, we have lots of activities. We eat. <laughs> we make things. We, uh, we have children. We do this. We do this. Well, it would have to be, in order to be the most fulfilling for us, it would have to be the activity, which means the actualization of our highest power. Our highest power is our intellectual power. That's what makes us different from the beasts. I mean, the beasts don't even ask if I, about happiness. We do. And it would have to be the highest activity of that power. You know, the reasoning power, gosh, is the highest activity just studying theorems in a blackboard? People sometimes read some philosophers who say happiness lies in contemplation and they think that it means something like that. 
Or if only I get a PhD and I teach philosophy, I'm going to be happy because I'll be contemplating truth. No, there are a lot of unhappy philosophers. The highest activity of our highest power would be the highest thing to which our minds can do aspire is actually the vision of God. Now, that's a tough one <laughs> because we can't attain the vision of God just by our own powers in this life, which opens up a whole can of worms of other questions that I try to deal with too. Yeah, and I would promise to our readers that if they're not convinced by the conclusion is at the end, I'm pretty sure that a lot of them will be convinced if they read carefully the previous chapters. Well, I hope so. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think so. You say something that I think could sound really refreshing to a lot of people that are probably living the good life and doing the right things, which is, it's a very good sign if you're not feeling completely happy. Oh, sure. You know, I remember once I gave a talk at my church. It was to people who were being instructed in their faith. And they said, well, you know, you're talking about ultimate happiness in connection with God, but, and I'd like to believe that, but, you know, I go to church, it doesn't thrill me and I'm not completely fulfilled. And I say, well, of course you're not completely fulfilled. Going to church is a very good thing. This is connected with the worship of God and with finding God, but the church isn't God. Okay. And I mean, we say, we Christians say the body of Christ, but I mean, going to church, going into the building, worshiping on Sunday, that isn't the experience, that isn't the vision of God in his own being. We are unfulfilled in this life, and that is just a fact. If there is this complete fulfillment, it is going to have to be, there are things that we can do in this life, don't get me wrong. We can attain a kind of a happiness through the practice of the virtues and through reasonable good fortune in this life. Call that the worldly wise man's view of happiness. I'm all for that. But it will leave you with something to be desired. It will not, as one of the thinkers puts it, it will not lull all desire. We will not experience that unless we are among those who see God in the next life. And we're not seeing him here. So if you say, well, I'm unfulfilled in this life, all you're doing is you're being honest. And I would say this, you can take joy in the recognition of your frustration at being unfulfilled. Because I'll tell you, if we were just evolved mud, then we'd be adapted to everything here. We wouldn't aspire to anything beyond this, and we would be fulfilled here. If you are not fulfilled here, that means there is something greater. We're meant for something more. We are yes. meant for something more. We are meant for something more. Aristotle had said, nature makes nothing in vain. It sort of surprises me that he didn't quite get this, because he also he knew that nature makes nothing in vain. That means there's nothing in our nature that's there for nothing, that's there for no reason. Well, that includes our longings, our desires. They're all for something. I desire food. Well, there's food, you know. I desire love. There is such a thing as love. But I have this mysterious desire. I spent quite a long time talking about this book and discussing why it's a mistake to think that it's really something else. There's a desire for something that cannot be found in this life. Well, unless nature does make something for nothing, then that is going to have to be for something literally out of this world. And I don't mean Mars. Wonderful. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think it that way. And, and again, I find it all very convincing um, that nature does nothing for nothing. Um, who are the happiest people that you've met in life? The happiest people that I've uh, met in life in terms of the happiness that is attainable in this life, which is incomplete, vulnerable, sure, okay. They are friends that I've had who are involved in, well, there are two groups. They're the ones who have been raising families and devoted to them, devoted to their wives or husbands and to their children. 
who had uh, work to do that they thought was contributed something meaningful to the community. They had friends, okay? And they cultivated the virtues so that they knew what to do with all this stuff. They knew how to live in a family. They knew how to engage in the practice of marriage, which is a real discipline. Uh, they knew how to exercise friendship because they were practicing the virtues of friendship. There are people like that. There are others that I've known, and I haven't known as many, and I've had less direct observation of them, but they have been people who led consecrated religious lives, who had sacrificed the possibility of marriage for a more direct pursuit of God. Not as though you can't pursue God in marriage, but that's good, that's wonderful, this is even better if you're called to it. And I've known some awfully happy people there. You know, this is kind of interesting. Thomas Aquinas was a person of that sort. He was a chaste, lifelong. He didn't marry. He was happy, I believe. But he spoke most movingly at times, not so much in the Summa Theologiae, but in, um, in his commentaries on Paul's letters in the New Testament and other places about the exuberant joy that married people can take in each other and how they can together move toward God. You wouldn't expect that of a person in a consecrated religious life. You know, we have these stereotypes. But, you know, because of the purity of his life, I think he was able to see what uh, purity in marriage would really be. And you mentioned earlier that one of the reasons to write this book is that you witness a lot of unhappiness around you and also among your students. And we know this. I mean, we, we've read the studies. We know what the numbers of uh, students uh, looking for mental counseling and committing sometimes, you know, self-harm and like they're, they're rising. It's an incredible mm -hmm, amount of numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, an incredible amount of, of, of people. Um, But just a quick interruption. Although I don't make a huge deal about survey data for the reasons that I explained earlier, this is one of the statistics that I do find useful. You ask a bunch of people on surveys, what makes you happy? You can't trust the results. You look at the rates of suicide in different kinds of communities. That can tell you a lot. But go ahead. And so, no, exactly. So with that in mind, and this is something I've asked you in the seminar that you recently led for us here at the Austin Institute, So thank you also for doing that mm -hmm. for us. But it was something about our present age and this theory that I think it was Charles Taylor to present, I think very articulately some years ago, that maybe the unhappiness of our age has something to do with disenchantment of our age. And so that even though people in the past might have been poorer or have a worse health conditions or their families might even have had more problems. They maybe had to marry people that were just their neighbors or, but at the same time, they had a clear view that we were not only meant for this word so yes. that the present unfulfillment was less important. Yes. If by enchantment, we mean you're under a spell of delusion, then You need to get disenchanted as quickly as you can. And I think that we pat ourselves on the back and imagine that this is what we've done in the modern age. But if enchantment means your eyes are open to a vision of something that is not just there and the light impinging on your eyes or the sound waves impinging on your ears, well, there really is something of that nature there. You know, I talk about this in the book too. Look, I have been married for 50 years. I look in the face of my wife and at times it seems that it's glowing with something. It is illuminated. It is not, as some philosophers would have said, just an illusion. But on the other hand, it isn't just her either. The love of her opens to the door to a vision of her transfigured, of 
her as God sees her, of her in the light of heaven, of her as she perhaps will be in beatitude, so that some light from other than the light sources in the room, some transcendental light is reflecting from her face. And we think that that's just biological arousal or something like that, and we try to simulate it with cosmetics that give your face a sort of a glow, and uh, (laughs) that's all pretty futile. And if you try to see the uh, transcendent that way, you're going to miss it. So, earthly love, and this is one of the wonderful things about earthly love, it has the fragrance of eternity in it because of that reflection. But, even so, the beloved is not the eternal herself. The longing for the beloved arouses that second longing or the eternal one. And we have to make sure that we keep these two things straight. Otherwise, our marriages won't even be happy because we'll be expecting in them an infinite satisfaction that only God can give. We'll make idols of our wives and husbands and be crushed. You know, Anjay, I would love to ask more questions. I wanted to ask you something about work. I need to pause a little whenever I hear this thing about the glowing or the face of the beloved, because I just find it so true. Anyone who has been seriously in love, I think that can very well relate to this. And I think that there is something beautiful. I think the first time we discussed this together was when we were talking about your conversion story. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was asking you very genuinely, why would you think that your wife could have fallen in love? with one person that was the pre-conversion person and then be still very much in love with the person that you were afterwards, which inevitably is very different. And that's when you told me about this. And it makes a lot of sense that what we see when we truly love is not only what the person is right now, Mm -hmm. but we do see all that potential. And so more Mm -hmm. than the potential is this probably this beatific vision for those. Yeah, This is one of the reasons why I love Dante. And people think Dante. Oh, you really? They think only of the Inferno. They don't think of the <laughs> of the Purgatory or the Paradiso. But in, in his comedy, in the third Canticle, in the Paradiso, he's led by a, a woman whom he had loved in this life. He's led by Beatrice, who is in heaven. She's in beatitude, and she symbolizes this sort of thing for Dante. It was a woman, a real earthly woman. But she was a carrier of that vision of something other than just herself to him. And he was able, according in the terms of the poem, he actually did see her in beatitude. And I think that there's a teaching about what romantic love can be there, not fairy tale princesses and imagining everything is going to be wonderful and happy ever after and you'll never disappoint each other and you'll never have any pain and you're not taking any risks. But romantic love is about, in its proper form, is a devotion to the true good of the other person that is so serious and so committed that is open to this vision of that person in the possibility of beatitude. Yeah, and I think you mentioned it already, but as happiness is an action, so is love, correct? So is love. Love is. Love is, you can describe it as commitment to the true good, enduring commitment to the true good of the other person, but commitment is an activity too. And it's not just an act of a moment. I do, (laughs) it's a continuing act. That's what's meant in a resolve. You know, we often think that love is just a feeling. It isn't a feeling. Consider the marriage vows. If love were just a feeling, the marriage vows would be ridiculous. I promise to love you. You know, this is a very serious promise. And it says, I'm going to keep loving you. I'm not going to stop loving you. You can't promise to have a feeling. 
anybody who's who's ever been in love, I've been married 50 years and I can tell you, you don't always feel the feelings, okay? <laughs> Sometimes you can be very annoyed with each other. Take note, everyone listening. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it isn't about the feelings. This commitment can endure. You can promise a commitment to you of your will. You can't promise always that you're going to have these feelings. Uh, just a very final note. You're a prolific scholar. You wrote a lot. You give a lot of lectures. You Does that make you happy? It, well, it's certainly an element in my happiness because I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, it took a long time in my life to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. And I've, I've passed through different kinds of misunderstanding. I'll give you an example. There are different kinds of scholars. And I'm not saying one is better than another, but I didn't know this about myself. I'm a teacher first. Some people... I used to think that teaching was incidental to what I do as a scholar when I first started out. And what I discovered is it's more the other way around. My scholarship is almost incidental to my teaching. Some people, they say, well, unless I first understand it completely, I can't teach it. That sounds right. But, you know, I've come to discover about the way that my mind works, that unless I think, how would I teach that? I can't come to understand it. Even if I'm listening to a sermon in church or something, I used to scold myself. I said, what's the matter with you? You're so proud. Do you think you're better than this guy? Because I would always be asking me, hmm, that's how he said it. How would I say that? And I finally realized, no, this isn't pride. That's how I understand. I understand him better, his thought better, because I can say, how would I teach that? So coming to understand this is how I am made. This is my individual bent. Everybody has their gifts. This is mine. This is... I'm here in this world in part to exercise that gift. That's been a source of joy because I can give myself to the doing of this. And that's great. So the message to those who are trying to understand what they should do after college or what it's also, you know, try and see what comes more natural. Try Is and see. Try and see. Yes. Now your initial inclinations or bents may be mistaken, but you'll discover an experience. You don't have to panic if you make a mistake about what to do at first. This is not the end of the world. It's just like I tell students, it's a good idea to take out some time between, say, your, your sophomore year and your junior year. Get out of college. You know, work for a while. And people think, oh, no, I've got to finish as fast as I can. That would be a terrible mistake. No, it's not. You're going to spare yourself probably a lot of mistakes. Another way to think about it is like this. People sometimes say, oh, I've got to find myself. I've got to find myself. You're not going to find yourself by looking for yourself. What you have to do is you try to be a good person. You try to practice the virtues. And I don't mean in an arrogant way. We have to hourly, minutely, if there's such an adjective, depend on the grace of God. Because we really can't do this on our own power adequately. Try to practice the virtues and you will discover who you are. You don't find out who you are by looking for who you are. You find out who you are by not worrying about it. Practice the virtues, follow God. Wow, this is a yeah powerful, I think, perfect message to end our episode. Of course, we have the link where people can buy your book, How and How Not to Be Happy, published by Ragnary. We hope to have you here again, Professor Buczewski, for seminars, for events, for lectures. And I really encourage everyone listening to us to get the book, read it, recommend it to others, and share the good news. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating. 
and please donate so we can do even more.